find strength to face the day. You know, sometimes some things come in our life and it's hard to face a day. It really can be. And I, I know probably there's people here that even this day was a hard day to face. But I want us to be reminded that God is with us. He never leaves us. He never forsakes you. No matter what is going on, no matter what this world brings your way, God's love for you is sure. His forgiveness is there. His grace is sufficient. The Bible says that God's mercy is new every single morning. That's God's mercy. That's God's grace. That's his love for you, for me. And I need that today. I need that. I want us to pray together and I want to take just a moment. I don't have long, but I want to take just a moment and just share some things that, that really, I need you to be praying for Center Point Bible Church. We have some real needs and we need to be praying for God to work in our church. First of all, about our future. I'm asking you to pray for God to direct and to provide for us for the future. I've shared with you on many occasions, we're working through a process now of, of deciding what is God going to do with Centerpoint Bible Church on the land that he's provided for us. And we need God's people to be praying. We need wisdom. We need opportunities that come our way because God's hand moves. Do you remember when we had a $120,000 to $175,000 bill ahead of us for water and for sewer? Do you remember that? And do you remember that we prayed? And do you remember that the group that should never have said yes to us came back and said, here you go, you can do it and, and we'll charge you like $30,000. And that day we saved 150000 of the Lord's dollars. Do you remember when the owner of this land said, sure, I'll sell you some of it. 10 acres for $275,000, that's what we'll do. And we said, that's too much. It's too much for too little. So we came back to you and we said, pray, pray. And do you remember that the owner called me on Christmas Eve and said, Lo, I've got one more offer and then that's it. This is what I want to do. I want to sell you all 20 acres for $200,000. And I said, wait, I think you're off by a factor. I think you made a mistake. Now, in reality, he actually sold us 21 acres. <laughs> Joke on him. No, not really, not really. <laughs> Do you remember God's provision? Pray. Pray. Because there are conversations and there are things going on that we need the Lord to lead. Listen, I want you to pray that we have a heart for children and youth ministry in our church. There is no other church in the Spring Mills community more strategically placed to impact children and teens than us. There is no other. But we need our church body to have a heart for this. To have a heart. And I've got two specific things I want you to pray about. One, I've got a slide for you. So this is, you, you can't see all the details probably where you are, but this is our kinder focus ministry for this summer. Now, I'm thankful for many of, the, many of the individuals who work in this ministry, but a lot of them are pregnant, okay? 
And so that means this summer, they're having a baby. They're not going to be able to work there. We need to invest in these children. We need to invest our lives in these children. What's more important than telling little kids about Jesus Christ? So I need us to pray that God would raise up. And here's specifically what I'm praying for. Some of you aren't going to like this prayer request, but some of you are going to be moved to action. I'm praying that God would raise up people in our church who don't have children in their home. And they would say, I'm willing. My nest is empty or emptying. And I'm willing to invest in the children of other people. Now, if you're working in there, if your name's on that list or, or you're being prodded of God to go in there and work, that's great. And you got kids in there, that's fine. But I'm specifically calling out to you who don't have children in there. And I want you to come make an offering that costs you something. It costs to invest in lives of children that aren't even yours. I'm, I praise God for the people in my four children's lives who aren't me, but can speak into their life. Thirdly, go back to my slide because I forget what they were. Um, pray for that we have a community with one another. I'm, I'm asking God to raise up people in our church who would say, you know what, Lowell? I'll open my home up for a small group. It's not a perfect home. It's not always clean. Neither is mine. I, I, don't, I don't have to lead it. But you come into my house and you lead a small group. I'd love to know who you are because we need that. And then lastly, that the gospel would be shared through us. That we would be a force of taking the gospel to our community that needs Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Lord, we come before you very, very needy. We find you giving us the strength to face the day. Lord, I pray right now for your strength to face this day. Lord, for people here who I know are hurting, who are heartbroken, who feel beaten down, feel like they've been beaten on. Lord, would you encourage them and let them find your mercy and grace anew, maybe for the first time, that your spirit would awaken their heart, people be brought to life again. This is no religion. It's no forced study. This isn't a club. God, these are your redeemed people. These are new creatures that you have reborn. And I pray, Lord, that we would respond. Like a son to his father. Amen. I was at Walmart, and this little kid was in line in front of me with his dad. Now, dad had a child in the, in the cart, so he was a little bit, you know, str- he, was, he was struggling with what was going on. <clears throat> Sorry. I get emotional sometimes. I'm weak that way. And this little boy is with him, and he keeps asking this question. Everything that dad said, the little kid would go, Why? 
okay? Five, six years old, you know, the kid comes through and the, the dad's pushing the cart and he says, can I get a candy bar? And the dad says, no, why? And then we start through this process. Well, because I don't want you to have the sugar. Why? Be- because, you know, you'll get all wound up. Why? And over and over and over. And the dad's trying to deal with this little child, you know, and the five-year-old, and he's just, you know, he's just beside himself. And I'm watching this and, and enjoying it because my kids aren't little anymore, you know? And so I'm just watching this and, and find the dad. He, I, I've been there, okay? He'd reached his limit and he stops. And he gets right down in the little kid's face and he takes him like this and he says, listen, don't ask why again. Now, I like this little kid because I saw these gears going on in his head. You know, I could just see it. And he goes, how comes? <laughs> you know, why? I remember figuring out that you could say why to anything. But in truth, why is a great question. When I look around the world today, and I see the devastation that people are experiencing, not only on the news, but in my friends' and family's lives, right? In the four walls of my own house, in our church, when I see the struggle that we have, I wonder why? Do you? Do you? I want us to take a moment really several moments for the next three months and talk about that and talk about that. And the way we're going to do it is we're going back to the Old Testament, okay? We're going back to the Old Testament. And so I, I want to answer, what I'm going to do over the next 13 weeks is we're going to, we're going to talk through the Old Testament. And I got two questions that, that we're going to deal with every single week. And then we're going to look at a passage. So that's my plan, okay? So here's my two questions that I want to ask every single week. The first question is, why should we study the Old Testament? What's the reason for studying the Old, the Old Testament? And what's the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament? I want to deal with that as a church this summer, okay? I know a lot of us will be in and out. We travel, that kind of thing. You need to be here every week and worship with God's people when you're in town. But when you're, when you're gone and when you come back, we'll be right here again. Why do we study the Old Testament and what's the relationship? And to start us out, go to John chapter 5, okay? John chapter 5. i got to talk quick. You've got to listen even faster today. John chapter 5, Jesus is going to deal with this question of why do we even study the Old Testament? John chapter 5, while you go there, let me just remind you, the Old Testament is filled with, with a lot of stories. Stories of war. Stories of victory. Stories of slavery. Stories of struggle. Stories of travel. Stories of worship, stories of miracles that blow our mind. But listen, this is very important. The Old Testament is not simply a history book. It is historical, but it is not simply a history book. In many ways, the Old Testament is nothing short of an autobiography written by God. God is recording the story of his impacting the world so that we can know him better. 
When we read through the Old Testament, you're not looking for moral ideas. You're not looking to say, I want to be like Daniel. I want to be like David. I want to be like Solomon. That's not how you read the Old Testament. David and Daniel and Solomon, those guys are cool and all that, but they're not the hero. They're not the hero. The hero is God and his son, Jesus Christ. So in John chapter 5, Jesus is having a discussion about this very issue. Look what he says in verse number 39. He says to the religious leaders of the day, experts of the Old Testament, experts of the Hebrew language, experts of all parts of the Old Testament. And he says, you, verse 39, search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. We can think that. Even us as Christians can think, if I just put this Bible in my life, if I just read about how David lived, how Daniel lived, how Abraham lived, and if I live like them, then I'll be following out God's plan. No. No. This is not a list of moral laws. Look what Jesus says the Old Testament is for. He says in verse 39, it is they that bear witness about me, Jesus. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Look at verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father, Jesus says. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. That's a word, Moses, referring to the Old Testament. He said, you're putting your hope in the Old Testament. For if you believed Moses, you believe me, for he wrote of me. The Old Testament is pointing us to Jesus. We need to see that. The relationship. One of the relations, we're going to talk about 13 relationships from the Old Testament and the New Testament. 13 reasons why we need to study it. 13 relationships. And I'll just share this quickly. The Old Testament promises the Messiah. We'll see that today. Promises the Messiah. The New Testament reveals him. Reveals him. So when we see what is true of Jesus, we can see this being confirmed in, his, in the Old Testament. So this is where we're headed, okay? Let me just say a little more about your Old Testament. I gotta go quick here, so give me a slide. Um, you might not realize that the Old Testament is laid, and we'll talk about this a lot, okay? We're gonna go quickly through this right now. But let me just talk to you about how the Old Testament's laid out. It's interesting how, how God has inspired his word. There's 17 books of history Five books of wisdom and 17 books of prophecy. Within that history, there's five books of the law written by Moses. And so Jesus would say, that the, when he talked to the Old Testament, he would say, the law, the writings, and the prophets. See, Jesus was saying, the law, that's your five, the first five books of your Old Testament. And then we go into 12 books of history. You can see it in your table of contents. This is the history from from when they first left Egypt all the way through the rebuilding of the second temple. And then we have the five books of wisdom. And the five books of wisdom tell us how we can emote correctly. How to weep. How to have joy. How to celebrate how to have times of great sorrow and even depression. How? The five books of wisdom tell us that. And then the 12 books of prophecy break up into five major and 12 minor. And they then reflect God's word to his people. 
One more slide, and I won't take time to talk about this one, but, but there's, there's a flow of the Old Testament, a flow. And by the end of the summer, you're going to understand this. You're going to understand what happens. We're today going to go to prehistory. And then you move forward through your Old Testament to the patriarchs and then the slavery in Egypt and then the exodus and the conquest and then Israel united and Israel divided and then Israel captive. And then back to Jerusalem. And then Jesus shows up in that temple and says, I'm Christ. So see, it's important for us to know what is there in that first, like, you know, thousand pages of your Bible that you probably very rarely crack. Now, I'll tell you, I, am, I, I love the New Testament. I love the New Testament. I, I have more training in studying the New Testament. I have more training in the language of the New Testament. I have more training in the theology of the New Testament. So I love the New Testament. So if you've been here for long, you know that Lowell is usually in a New Testament book over and over and over and over. Over this summer, we're going to tackle the Old Testament, the whole thing, okay? The whole thing, all right? So let's go to Genesis chapter three and see paradise lost, paradise lost. Genesis chapter three contains in it the devastating answer to most of man's questions with hope included. Verse number one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now the Old Testament is filled with stories, okay? By the way, just let me tell you, I'm not getting done the outline, all right? So let's just get over that, okay? It's not gonna happen, all right? The Old Testament is filled with story. And the reason for that is most of the the readers of the original Old Testament were illiterate. Most of them didn't read. So instead, you would tell story. You would tell story. So picture now, around the campfire, okay? They're in a tent-site city, and this story is being told. Now, I came across this plan for stories, seven elements of a story, and I thought, this works for Genesis 3. First, we'll look at the backstory. What's going on as we, enter, as we enter into chapter three, verse number one? Well, you can read about it in verses, or chapters one and two. When God has made everything and declared everything good six times and once very good. Seven times God said, it is good. Now there was one problem that God observed in Genesis one and two, and it was not good that man would be, what? Alone. So God made a suitable helper for him. God made man, God made woman. Both co-equal, both co-regents, ruling over the creation. God had gave them authority over all. And they were in paradise. They had perfect communion with God. Genesis 3 reveals that they would walk with God in the garden. In many ways, I believe if you want to know what heaven is like, read Genesis chapter 2. Read it. Read about God's involvement in, in the lives of his people. But in verse number 1, we have a catalyst. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast 
of the field. We enter in here a character, a real, a real personality who later will be identified as Satan. And at verse 1, the atmosphere of the garden changes. It becomes ominous, foreboding. It's like, it's like the color goes gray. You see it? And the serpent was more crafty or cunning or sly or sinister or tricky. These are all synonyms for that Hebrew word. Adam and Eve had never encountered this. They had never encountered this kind of craftiness, this cunningness, this, this trickery, this lie. They had never experienced this. And look what the serpent now, empowered by Satan, says. Did, he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall, now eat, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. This serpent who's now, who is the catalyst to bring this problem, he brings these first words into Eve's ears. And what does he do? He attacks God's words. He attacks the very word of God. Did God really say this? Did God say this? And I love the fact that look what Eve does. Eve answers him correctly. Eve steps in and is like the first person to stand up for Christ. And the woman said to the serpent, we may not eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. She stands for truth. But it doesn't really end there. Because listen, the lie of Satan and the lie of the system that is devastating lies that is devastating lives, that is devastating people. The question that it first asks is not truly what it's after. Did God really say this? That isn't really the question that Satan was asking. Be aware, the questions that you hear in the world, they have a sinister, cunning trick behind them. And we will see it. Right now, Satan is being subtle. Did God say this? But watch where he goes. And folks, because I'm going to run out of time, put on your antenna. Have your antenna up. And know that the question that is asked in your classroom, the question that is asked on the History Channel, the question that is asked by your friends, the question that your heart is asking you is not the true question. Where does Satan go? Eve says, we must, not, we must not eat of the fruits of the tree in the garden. And then she goes on. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Oh, I wish she had stopped there. That was true. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And listen, I'm looking at our fishermen right now. The line is thrown. 
the spinner bait is clicking and Satan knows, boom, I got her. She didn't know truth. She didn't know God's truth. She had been exposed to God's truth. But at this moment, she didn't respond to it. And now the big event occurs. So the tempter, he enters into this conversation, but now God's character is going to be brought into question. God's very character is now going to be attacked. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. What did he just call God? Call God a liar. You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. So now God is worse than a liar. He's a malicious liar. See, he's trying to manipulate and to keep her from what is good. God is a liar, according to the serpent, and he's a malicious liar. He knows there is good, God does, according to the serpent, and he says, you can't trust God. You can't trust him. God's character now is brought into question. You will not surely die. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What should Eve have said? I am like God. I am like God. I was made in the image of God. I am as most like God as anything can be. She should have reasoned it back. I am made in the image of God. I am God's child. See what? Here's what theologians call this, okay? Here's what theologians call this moment. This was, and moving through our outline, this was the offering of autonomy. Autonomy. Autonomy is man versus the sovereignty of God. And this is the crucial lie of Satan. We see it here in Genesis 3. You will find it in Luke 4. You will find it in Matthew 4. You will find it in 1 John chapter 2. It is the lie of the serpent. It is the lie of Satan. It is the lie of the deceiver and the tempter. And here's what it is. You can be autonomous. You can make your own decisions. You are better off to decide for yourself. Eve, you can make the call. You can be God. God's law, God's way is restrictive, Eve. There's not joy there. There's not good gifts there. There's only hindrance there's only boxing you in because God is malicious. Do you recognize the call for autonomy? You know, in every educational psychology class I had, we had to talk about this triangle. I don't even know whose it was. Some dude that came up with this, talent, this triangle. Remember it? Some of you are like, yeah, I remember that. There you go, yeah. And the goal was autonomy, saith the world. 
I don't want autonomy. I, 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 don't, I don't want to make the decisions. You know why? Because every time I do, I mess it up. Every time I do, it goes wrong. Every time I move away from God and his sovereignty. See, we have, we have a conflict here, folks. We have a war. We have a civil war between the sovereignty of man and the sovereignty of God. And we have a tempter who's calling, who's casting and saying, be autonomous, be autonomous. You can make the decisions. You can rule. You can be like God. The climax, their spiritual eyes are opened. When the woman saw, verse 6, that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, the tree was desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And perhaps the saddest verse in all of the Bible, verse number 7, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, understand, this is not so much about nakedness. It's not so much about clothing. It's all about shame. It's all about shame. Their eyes were open. In many ways, Satan was telling the truth. Their eyes were now opened and they saw their nature and they wanted to hide from God. They were made to delight in God. They were made to be in his presence. They were made to enjoy him forever, directly in commune with him, in his presence with intimacy with God, but now their eyes are open and they see themselves and their nakedness and they run in shame and they hide themselves. And the rest of the Bible, the rest of the Bible, it is not Adam and Eve trying to figure out how to work their way back to God. It is not the descendants of Adam and Eve trying to figure out how to undo this mess they made and pursue God. No. The entire Bible is the story of God pursuing Adam and Eve. It is God seeking relationship with them, with all of their failure, with all of their shame. God comes back again and again and again with this grace. Again and again and again, God's back with the grace that says, I pursue you. I pursue you. Now we go into fifth gear, high speed, okay? Let's just walk through this thing. Genesis chapter four, murder. There is murder as Cain kills Abel. But at the end of this, there's grace. God places that mark on Cain and says, don't harm him. And then we go a little bit further. Turn over to Genesis chapter four. Look with me at verse number 23. 
And look here what happens is now man is degenerating. Man is now revealing the sinfulness, the shamefulness. 423. We have a descendant now of Cain. His name is Lamech. He said to his wives, first occurrence of polygamy. When man now has violated God's plan, one man, one woman for life. God, man violates it here. Descendant of Cain violates it. Goes into sexual sin, polygamy. And look what he says to his wife. Ada and Zillah, that's their names. Hear my voice, you wives of Limech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Man now degenerates. He degenerates into Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, now lust takes over. And God reveals to us that the sons of God, in verse number two, saw the daughters of men and they were attracted to them, so they married them. A lot of debate about what that means. A lot of debate what that means. I'd love to talk to you about it, but I don't have time right now. What we do know is that we are outside of God's plan for a believer and a believer being together. We have moved away now. We have unequally yoked. Personally, I believe these are the descendants of Canaanite marrying the descendants of Seth. And so now they're unequally yoked. Devastation. Devastation. Don't tell me it'll work for you. No, it won't. It will not work for you. Gravity always works. Always. Laws are laws for a reason. Lamech, the sons, they continued. They violated autonomy. I know better. I'll choose what I want to. God wipes out the earth. We see it in Genesis chapter 6, chapter 7. And now, man, Noah, maybe he's our man. Maybe Noah is our man. Nope, sorry. Look at Genesis chapter 9. Look at verse number 20. See what happens. Noah, he's out of the boat now. The water is going away. Verse 20, Noah began to be a man of the soil. He planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine, became drunk, and lay uncovered in his tent, which, by the way, is a sexual word. I in no way believe that Noah happened to roll out from this blanket and didn't have his boxers on. This is a sexual moment. That's what this is. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw this nakedness of his father and told his brothers outside. And now Noah will wake up, verse 24, when he woke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him. Cursed be Canaan, the descendants of Ham. Cursed be them. But there's grace. Look through the grace, verse 26, 27. Noah also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. By the way, Shem, you ever heard of the word a Semite? That's where it comes from. These are the ancestors of the Jews, the Semites. This comes from Shem. He says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servants. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. Who dwell in the the tents of Shem? God. God. God will dwell in the tents of Shem. What is it saying? There is hope. There is grace coming. 
It continues, but I cannot. Turn back a couple pages. Contained in Genesis 3 is not only every devastating answer for most of man's questions, but there's also this thread, this thread that starts in Genesis 3. It's, it's tied on in Genesis 3. And it threads its way through all of Scripture. As you follow along the thread, you get to Cain, and you see that he was marked that no one would kill him, grace. You get to the descendants of Noah, who, who God said, I'm going to dwell in the tent of Shem. One day I'll dwell in the tent of a Semite. One day I will walk on the earth as a Jew. I believe that's exactly what he's saying. See that thread? The thread continues to Babel, where now man in his common language comes up with this new technology called the brick. And they fashion this giant tower that they're now going to make themselves like God. And God says, no, no, no. I need you to scatter. So he scatters them with a different language. But that thread is tied on at Genesis chapter 3. Look at it in verse number 16. 15, that is. Speaking now to Satan, the great rebel, God says, I will put enmity, that is, that is angst, that is problem, that is struggle, between you and the woman. So all of her descendants, you will be a battle. You will be a battle. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head. Who's he? Well, this, this offspring, this, 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 this serpent, this, there's this battle going on, okay? He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here, it's, it's called the, theologians call this the proto-evangelicon. It's the first time the gospel is shared. Satan, you're going to snap at the heel of a descendant of Eve. And you're going to bite him. And it's going to hurt. But he's going to pick up his great big boot. He's going to lift it high. He's going to crush his head. Romans 16.20 The God of this world will soon crush Satan. It's this moment. So we went through Genesis 1 to 11. And it feels like there's no hope. So I'm going to end with this. Chapter 12. There is hope. Now out of the silence, out of the, out of the silence, there's a voice. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. Folks, God's grace is new. God's way is best. And there is an enemy seeking to kill and destroy. 
guard against autonomy. Say no to autonomy. Say yes to the sovereignty of God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for your strength to share it and to teach it and to learn it and to respond to it today. God, protect us from the enemy of this world that seeks to devour, to kill, to destroy, to steal, to lie, to tempt. And Lord, for those of us who have failed, we thank you for your forgiveness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.